Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my podcast, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, author of Who Do Cleansing and Protection Magic, Damian Keller, binaural production engineer, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything there that you need. And now, without further ado, our guest today for today is David Ditchfield, and he has written a book called Shine On, and he has experience, had a uh, near-death experience, um, and he's here to tell us about it. Thank you for coming on, David. Well, thanks for having me along. Good to meet you. So, how did you uh, get dragged by a train? Well, um, basically what happened was I, I was seeing a friend off at, at the rail station and uh, I was just helping her basically on, onto, the, onto the train with her bags and uh, gave her a hug and a kiss goodbye. And we heard the emergency buzzers go and as I stepped back, the bottom corner of my coat got trapped in the closing doors and I couldn't pull it free uh, because it was this, it was a sheepskin coat. It is it's thick quality and it wasn't going to come out. I called for a guard and there was no, there was no one there. There was no guard basically on the platform banged on the windows. Nothing was going to happen. So the, the engine started to rev up and I thought, this is it. I'm going to die. You know, I didn't think I was going to survive this because the train was just like edging out that that station at high speed. You don't realize just how fast they go until you're attached to the outside of one. I lost my footing and I was dragged along the platform and then I was finally sucked between the flat platform edge and the speeding train itself. And I got pulled under the wheels. It was like, I remember it feeling like the sensation of being pulled into, you know, into, into this, dark sort of pit of of violence really you know it was just the um a very violent experience i was just i just suddenly felt like you know flesh and bones against this huge beast of a machine that was that was going to kill me you know and i was just tossed around relentlessly from pillar to post and finally i was thrown to the ground and i was lying between the tracks while the train was still continuing to you know make its way above my head and I knew it wasn't all over yet because I thought part of the undercarriage could just whack me over the back of the heads and that would be it. So I kept my face right down into, into the oily gravel and eventually the train passed on and uh, I'd survived it. And I just couldn't believe what had just happened. Yeah. Wow. And <laughs> <laughs> that, that's crazy. I never knew a button could be that strong. <laughs> <laughs> you thought the button would have broke. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, it's, it's crazy because I, I mean, I, I heard you would have thought the, the you know, the, the weight of my body being pulled along at that speed would have freed the coat, and that's mm-hmm. what I was hoping for. But it didn't do. You know, um, I found out later because the rail, the, the the UK rail police did like a massive inquiry because I live in the UK. This is where I'm based, and uh, and there's. What it was is the rubber seal in between the doors 
had like a crocodile sort of effect going on. And they were there to prevent the doors from opening as they were going, you know, the motion of the train. So that's why it was firmly trapped in there. So as I, when I went down under, I remember hearing a tremendous rip. So that was obviously the coat finally ripping as I got sucked in into the gates of hell as, as I describe it as. So yeah, pretty, pretty scary, but amazing that I survived. Wow. Um, so when you went through this experience, uh, a lot of times like when people go through these things, it happens in slow motion. Did you experience that? Yeah. Um, it didn't, it wasn't actually like slow motion, but time stretched. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the way I would describe it. Um, because it was interesting because even though it was terrifying, I felt like I got time to think things through. For example, when I knew that the train was revving up and about to leave, I actually had this thing, this thought flashed into my mind. I'd seen a news item only weeks before where a small child had been thrown from a third floor apartment block in a fire and had survived without any injuries. And they put that down to the fact that infants don't tense up like adults when mm-hmm. they go into a state of shock. So I decided to relax my body. And that's exactly what I did. And in fact, my friend who, who I was seeing off, she ran through the train as the train pulled out to look through the window. And uh, when she, she said to me in hospital, she said, look, this sounds really odd, but when I saw you go under, you, she said you rolled under with such grace. <laughs> and she said, I hope you don't mind me saying that. I said, no, that's because that's exactly what I did. So I'm sure that that helped me in, in some way survive, you know, going through that, that allowing my body to, to relax. And also when I was lying on the track, when I said I thought the, the undercarriage was going to hit me, I thought, right, think of 007, think of all the Bond movies or the Indiana Jones movies, what they would do now. Mm-hmm. And I was, all those thoughts were in my head. So it's interesting because I, I also saw a documentary recently where an American uh, neurology guy, a, a guy turned around and said that, um, that basically this happens when people are facing death, like guys who are like hanging off a mountain cliff and they, they, you know, when they fall that um, time stretches out he described it as being if, if you think that our lives are like looking through a, a basic video camera suddenly it becomes like a 35 millimeter expensive wide angle lens and you can take everything in and that's absolutely true it's like I was able to assess the whole situation fight or flight basically is what it was yeah wow and when, what happened afterwards well the the Emergency guys arrived, the paramedics, and they, they somehow managed to get me, you know, cut through my clothes and get me on a stretcher and off, off the track. And then I was, you know, I got in the back of the ambulance and the, the doctor said, look, there's, on a, there's a hospital around the corner, but the one that's going to save you is about 25 minute drive. Can you hang on? I said, yeah, let's go. So we did. We just flew off down the highway and, um, he just kept me going, kept talking to me. Then when we arrived at the hospital, there was a whole team waiting there, you know, for me. And I went in and I knew that it wasn't all over yet because they, I could hear the fear in their voices. You know, there was like a lot of panic and, and also I couldn't understand what they were saying because it was all, you know, science good. And, uh, my family arrived. They were there really quick. And again, time seemed really odd. I thought, how did they get here? But they came in and saw me and they were really distressed. My mom was in tears and, uh, then they, um, I was lying there and it was pretty much at that stage when all my family were around me and that I, that I left my body. I went from all that 
terror and all the pain and the anxiety that I was going through to what felt like a really dark and peaceful place. And uh, it was, um, it felt like a darkened room that I was in at first, but it wasn't at all foreboding. It just felt very comforting. And, uh, and I looked around and I was surrounded by these orbs of colors that were like uh, slowly pulsating all around me, like colors of yellows and greens and orange. And, uh, and I figured straight away that I hadn't made it. I thought I'm dead. This I this I'd not survived it. But I didn't panic, I didn't resist it. So I know that some people do. Uh they try to fight it and come back because they've got so much to live for. But I didn't want to die at that point. But you know, I was so pleased to be away from the horror that I'd just been through that and I just decided to relax. So I laid my head back and I realised I was no longer on a hospital trolley. But I was now laid on what appeared to be like a huge slate rock. It was like a big medieval altar if you like and, uh, and I just laid down on there and uh, as I laid down I looked up and I saw like three grids of white light come in above me and I was just couldn't take my gaze away from these grids of white light and because the there was like an energy coming from that white light and I felt that the energy was was healing me and that it was just um it was just taking away not only the the horror of the accident but it was just calming me you know from the the whole day um i suddenly felt the presence of somebody near me so i lifted my head and i looked and there was there was a a person just stood at my feet um wearing a very contemporary simple black t-shirt nothing too ethereal just a simple black t-shirt and uh this person was like androgynous and uh with like this pure white blonde hair and this skin that was glowing from light from within. And um, this person was just smiling at me. And, and I thought, I know this person, you know. I, it's like, you know, if you meet somebody for the first time in your life at a party and you, 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 you spark it off, you're chatting, and you say, I feel like I've known you before, you know. And it was like that. And I said, who are you? I know you, don't I? And then this person just kept smiling back at me, uh, but reassuringly. And so I felt guarded by by this person and safe so i decided to lay my head back and uh enjoy all this energy that was coming through from the light um and then as time went on i suddenly felt the presence of more more people and i looked and there was there was two female forms either side of me to my left and right and uh, the girl on my right was like a white european in 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 appearance and uh, with long brown hair and again a very simple brown dress whereas the girl to my left was more um, American Indian or Asian Indian or, or Brazilian even and she was wearing a more traditional dress now they had, they had their hands just touching my body but slowly hovering their hands over my body and I felt the energy from these hands was just like tremendous it was like a, a it was like the energy of unconditional love that were just like filling the whole of my my being and I just felt like they were just not only healing the the wounds that my body had just received and gone through because my, my body was taken a heck of a beating you know um, in fact my left arm had been severed it had been cut from the elbow down so but I looked and all my wounds were fine my arm was okay it was all in place there wasn't even a single scratch so I laid my head back down and and I suddenly thought this healing that I'm receiving right now is is 
undoing all the pain, the emotional pain that I carry through it, that we all do, that we've got emotional baggage, as we call it. And all that baggage was just being taken off layer by layer. And they were just getting down to the essence of my pure soul. And they were just like um, healing that, healing that, that pureness of my soul. And uh, I felt great and complete for the first time in my life because up until that point, my life had been pretty disastrous and a, and a struggle. Um, so, um, as, so I just laid back and I just enjoyed all this that was happening. And I suddenly started to think about my family because I, I knew that they were pretty cut up back in, in the hospital. So I thought, well, I'm going to sort of look over the edge of this rock and see if I can see them. So I lifted my, my body over and I looked hoping to see them, but I didn't. But what I did see was this incredible sight. It was just, uh, it was like a huge waterfall of stars, uh, the size of, say, Niagara Falls. But instead of like tons of water cascading over the edge, it was just millions of sparkling stars that were just tipping over and just falling down and shooting stars kind of like firing away over the top. And I thought, wow, you know, and I just kind of like looked down and... The further I looked, uh, the more I could see, you know, my gaze started to, to adjust and I could see one galaxy into another. I felt like I was looking into infinity and I was seeing nebulas and beautiful colors. And so I realized that actually I wasn't in a small darkened space at all. I was actually in the universe itself and part of that universe. So it was a pretty profound moment. Um, but I would say that the, the most profound thing that happened was was really the end of this experience and that was that the tunnel of white light that most people talk about when they have near-death experiences was there and it was approaching me i could I, i felt it before i could see it actually i could feel this energy that was like sort of making every single molecule of my body vibrate and i thought what is going on and so i i looked i lifted my head again and looked and there was this huge tunnel of white light it was closing in on me and this tunnel and it, again it was this pure white light that was in that was coming from these grids of light but this was more intense and it was an awesome sight it was like surrounded by flames that were slowly rotating around and I, I felt no fear at all i felt nothing but excitement and uh, and um in fact there was a lot of telepathy going on throughout this whole experience and And I was being told that what I was looking at here was the source of all creation. You know, this was, this was God, uh, you know, that I was looking at this in, in my own, uh, words anyway. And this was, you know, not the usual sort of God that, we, that we, I'd been used to seeing. For example, you know, in Christianity, the image of God with a beard, you know, in all the Renaissance paintings. Uh, this, it was, this was a tunnel of white light. This is where it all starts. This is where it all comes from. And it was pretty much at that point when I made this realization that uh, I came back into my body. I was back in the hospital and uh, back into the into the pain and you know trauma. And the, the it felt like the lights there were like overkill. I couldn't take them, you know, because it was all fluorescent strip and you know, and the, and the, the bustle and bustle and the energy of the hospital was just like overkill. But um, yeah, but I was just filled with just joy. Because I'd just been filled with all this love and knowledge, and it was just like I thought. Rather than feel disappointed, I'd come back. I thought, why am I back, and why have they sent me back, and what is my mission? So, um, 
yeah, so there I was, back in back in the pain. Wow. Back in the <laughs> so so were you clinically dead? No, I wasn't actually clinically dead. I know that some people are, but I wasn't, no. Um, but I've obviously done lots of research into the NDE since that happened, and uh, a lot of people are in my situation where I was very close to death. You know, I was losing so much blood. You know, I was losing copious amounts of blood because of, of my injury. And I think this is what happens. It's not always a state of being clinically dead or comatized that, you, you, you know, you're close. So, so yeah, so I, I was still alive. Wow. Um, they, they, in fact, they were just about to take me in, into the uh, uh, operating room at that stage to start an eight-hour operation on me, which is what they did. And, uh, and I came through from that. And they'd given me my own room in the hospital because of the, the severity of my injuries and my, oh, my accidents itself, you know. And I remember waking, it must have been about 2 a.m., and I was just in this room in my, on my own with this little machine bleeping next to me. like a, a, It became like my friend, like R2-D2 in Star Wars, you know, <laughs> me and the machine. And so I got a, a lot to think through and contemplate, you know. I mean, part of me was, you know, thinking you know, dealing with the, the trauma of the accident, you know, I, I got post-traumatic stress, which I, would stay with me, which I still have now, you know, because, you know, the human body should not have, be going through something like that. And uh, so I was dealing with that, but the majority of my thoughts were really with this whole experience that had just happened to me. And I was going, wow, you know, what was that? And I knew nothing about near-death experiences at this point. I was purely non-spiritual. So I got no, no idea why what had just happened, but all I could think of was again why they sent me back, and how am I going to tell people about this? Because I thought the world needs to know about this, that the afterlife is a beautiful place and mm. not to be feared. Wow! So this is a pretty similar to experience I had. Actually. Oh, great! Yeah. I mean, it wasn't an accident, but I was at work one day, and uh, everything just started flashing really fast, like a strobe light. I was like, shit, I don't feel good. Things shouldn't be flashing like this. And um, so the girl I was working with was like, oh, do you want to go in the back to sit down? And I was like, yeah. And as we were walking back, I, don't know, I just blacked out and fell on the floor. Didn't feel anything, you know. And, um, and then all of a sudden, it was complete blackness. There was like those colors floating around. Brilliant. And it was so peaceful. It was the most peaceful, serene thing I ever felt in my entire life. And, um, and I was out for about a half hour. And then the next thing I, I, I knew, I heard somebody shouting, Gary, come back, Gary, come back. And by then, I was already in the ambulance. And I woke up, and I was in the ambulance, and my wife was yelling for me to come back. But and I remember like opening my eyes, like, like, like you wanted, you're okay with coming back. Me, I was kind of like, shit. <laughs> you know, I got I to keep going in this life after experiencing that other thing that was like outside <laughs> of my body, you know? Yeah. And, um, but, but it changed me forever. I mean, that's one of the reasons I started this really? podcast because all of a sudden I realized like my biggest realization was 
There's absolutely nothing to be afraid of. Exactly. So, so, and like you, um, this is what I want to ask now. You mentioned that your life previous to this experience was a mess, and afterwards mm. it changed. Can you talk That's a little right. bit about that with me? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I think really a lot of it stems to the fact that uh, I'm, I'm dyslexic, and so, and that was never diagnosed when I was at school, but it meant that. You know, I really ended up failing a lot, a lot of the academic sort of subjects terribly. So I left school with, with barely any qualifications. So it was just a struggle for me to try and find out how I fitted into life, into society, you know, just trying to find work. I, you know, I moved to London, basically, and hoped that that, that would kickstart a life for me. And, you know, I, it was great, but in, in a sense, it, it was tough because like all capital cities, it's very hard to survive. And it's, it's a lot of people living there are successful, you know. And I was surrounded by people who were. A lot of my friends were like working in, in things like the music industry and stuff. And I was thinking, I want to be a part of that. Why can't I get through that door? And not only that, the, the only work I could really pick up when I was living in London was uh, uh, blue collar work. So I was working up on construction sites and doing manual laboring. And I was not any good at that kind of work. You know, I'm just not cut out for it. The other guys working there were brilliant. And I understand now that there's a real craft to, to that kind of stuff that they're doing. But I just couldn't do it, you know. They'd say, oh, can you plaster a wall? And I'd try it. I'd just, it'd be a mess, you know. So I ended up struggling. I thought, but how do you do life? How do you fit in? How do you make it all work? So, yeah. And so I ended up, basically, I started drinking quite heavily as well because that was my way of dealing with all this with going wrong, you know. And so... Yeah, that so that didn't help. That didn't help my scenario because it's it's it's. Uh, I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that the way I would really pick up my work was that there was a the local bar that I used to go to, and so all the guys who ran the construction sites who would pick off a of work would be drinking there like at the end of each shift. So I ended up sort of doing that. So that that the the, the local pub, the local bar, became my office. So that's not a healthy setup. So yeah. <laughs> So nothing was going right, and I I ended up running out of money. I was broke, and I I, I lost my apartment, you know, um, and so I, I it was just going terribly wrong. So it was um it maybe it was maybe it was you know I needed something like this. It's a, it's a, I mean it's a, an awful horrible way to go through a big shake up in your life, but it just it did it just it just kind of it's almost like the rug needed shaking. You know, to get rid of all the dust. So that's how I see it. Hmm. And then how about afterwards? How did it change? Well, it changed basically because uh, when I was recovering in hospital, but as I say, I was thought, how am I going to tell the world about this? And I was scared I was going to forget about what had happened, you know, because it was such a big thing. To... So I remember the first night my sister had come to visit me and I thought I'm going to do a painting. that I'd never done anything like this. I thought it's got to be a big, like sort of Renaissance style painting, like the big biblical scenes, because it's, it's, it was that dramatic. So I, I got her to bring a sketch pad in for me and a, and a pencil, and I started sketching out very faintly. I've still got it. You can barely see it because I was so weak. You know, the nurses would prop me up while I did these sketches. Anyway, I got, when, once I was recovering, I recovered at my sister's house because I'd lost my apartment, as I say, and, and she cared for me with her family. And, um, so basically, I, I started painting, and, I, and when I did, it was like a huge painting, and 
I, I was nervous about doing it, you know, anticipation. I didn't want to mess this up. But once I started painting, I realized that the ideas were going onto that canvas really well. And it was starting to, to develop behind, before my eyes. And I thought, I'm getting help here. And I thought, this isn't just me doing this painting. Because I still felt like a, a huge part of me was still attached to this other realm that I've been in. I was still charged with a lot of positive energy like I never had before in my life. So I had the confidence to do this. And um, the first painting came out great. And then uh, I, I became prolific. I just kept, couldn't stop. So I started doing all these paintings. And a lot of them were all based on what I'd seen in my experience. And um, so I realized that I found all this creativity that was coming through. And, and then, uh, then music was the next thing. I thought, <sighs> what happened was I, I started having spiritual healing. And I don't know if you've heard of spirit, anything about spiritual healing at all. But um, I hadn't myself. But um, I'd come across a spiritualist church, basically, that was in the small town where I was recovering. And I wanted to go there because I thought these guys might know something a bit more about what um, what's happened and I could share it. And they did. And they looked, you, they said, you look in a pretty bad way. You, look, <laughs> you know, we do spiritual healing. If you're interested, I said, yeah, when can I come? They said, so on well, next Thursday. So I went along. Now, some of these healers, they're, they're, they're also clairvoyants and so they'll lay their hands on and they would, they would heal me and they would give me messages and quite a lot of them were turning around at the end they were saying why am I picking up a violin and I was going to have no idea and they said I'm hearing Beethoven and Wagner I said I know nothing about classical music then one of them turned around and said they're telling me that you're going to write a piece of music about your experience I went great so I went home and I got this old cheap synthesizer in the loft and I pulled it down, dusted it off and all I got was a cassette recorder and that was it. And So I started recording what I thought was going to be a song about my NDE but it started to develop into something that sounded more like it should be a piece for orchestra and um, there was a lot of synchronicity was going on after, after this after this near-death experience, and one of those parts of those synchronicities was I'd met a cello player who used to come up and see me when I was painting, and she was quite spiritual. We used to meet for coffee, and she said, what are you up to? And I told her about this piece of music I was writing, and I said, it feels like it should be played by an orchestra. And I wasn't hinting at anything, but she turned around and said, well, maybe we could perform it. And I thought, that would be great. So my brother gave me, he said, look, I've got some software that you can have, and you can attach it to your laptop, and... And when you play in the notes, you're going to have to buy a new keyboard. But when you play the keyboard, it will transform the musical notes that you're playing into musical notation so that the orchestra can read the parts. So that's what I did and printed them off, took them along to the orchestra. And they, they looked at it and said, yeah, we'll do it. So I had this uh, piece that I just started off on a little cheap synthesizer. Now it was ready to be performed by an orchestra. Um, the help that I was getting that I was channeling through uh, with the paintings was now coming through with me with the music because I got I got like a, a matter of months to finish this off you know and I wanted three parts and the whole thing is called the divine light was based on my near-death experience and um, and yeah so it was performed and it was and uh, it was premiered to a sellout audience it was incredible because um They'd asked me to talk to the local press about it and say, look, can you talk about your experience? I mean, talk about your piece, sorry. And I said, yeah. And the guys at the local press said, hang on, you're the guy who went under the train, aren't you? Because it was all over the news. At that mm -hmm. point. I said, yeah. 
They said, oh, this is going on the front cover. So from that point, the BBC came. They wanted to film me. And so that's why it sold out. So the atmosphere was, like, incredible that night because uh, there was this, this buzz, you know. There was this lovely buzz in the air. And so I was able to sit there on the front row with my family and enjoy the experience of hearing my music played by an orchestra. And I, I, it's, it's really amazing because it's, it's like a three-dimensional sound of, of, of what I'd heard and heard in my head. And uh, what I tried to create on this cheap little synthesizer, and it was beautiful. And um, there was a standing ovation right at the end. Everybody stood up and there was just like, you know, there was a lot of people really got it. And I realized from that point onwards that this was my way of, of basically expressing my story and expressing that there is an afterlife and it's beautiful is through my art and my music. And so that's my life now. So I've gone from struggling to find my way of fitting into life to now finding that I've got new tools to be able to get out there and and share you know my message as it were so yeah why do you think all this happened um well because like a lot of people who've had near-death experiences they, they come back with one it, they all come back with, with their, they don't all come back like me and say oh suddenly they want to start painting or anything. But they will find new forms of communication um, to talk about what's happened to them. Like yourself, it's, you know, you've never forgotten it, you know, mm-hmm. and it's stayed with you and it's changed your outlook. And it, it's, you have this burning desire to want to be able to share this message with everybody. And the common thread is, is that, well, first of all, that, that there's nothing to fear that, 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 that after death, you know, there's beauty and, and it's a wonderful place to be. And um, and not only that, that where, what you experience in that realm is unconditional love. And, and the message is that we are all loved. And I brought that back with me. And so I feel that I was sent back for a reason that I was sent back to come to, to send this message, you know, through my work and, you know, a lot of people go about it in different ways, but this was my sort of medium, if you like, was to, is to go, is to spread it. Well, well, the book came next. You know, I, I wrote a book, even though I'm dyslexic. Again, more synchronicity. I bumped into a friend I hadn't seen for years, and who'd been living miles away from me. She was at the top end of Scotland in, in the Outer Hebrides, and she said, "What, what have you been up to?" And I told her, and she said, "Why haven't you written your story?" I said, "Well, I'm dyslexic." She said, "Well, we could work together on this. I'll be your co-author." let's do a book so we did and um so the book came out last year last last june and that was again that was amazing because it was like i didn't know how that was going to go where you know the the publisher said oh you're probably going to be doing interviews and signings and i was going i'm quite sort of introverted i'm not sure i'd be up for that and then we had uh covid and then all of a sudden the whole world goes into lockdown and i didn't i thought what's going to happen with the book and uh, it meant, in in a sense, it worked really well for me because I was, yes, I was promoting the, the, the book, but it was through, like we're doing now, just through Zoom meetings. And, and, and I was comfortable with that. I felt this is great. I'm, I'm reaching out to people in all corners of the world and talking about uh, my book, but also my message and reaching out. And, and so it's kind of like the word is spreading the... It's like a ripple, the ripple that, that first started when I came back from that NDE 
has just kind of continued to sort of make its way across the you know the airwaves of the universe or whatever you know so i feel like the universe is behind me and helping me just to open and let this story evolve or my story my own particular story anyhow tell me a little bit about this unconditional love Mm. yeah well unconditional love is basically basically if you think about it it's it's what i describe it as all the different forms of love that i'd received in my life whether it was through a lover or my parents or even my pet cat you know they're all different forms of love so unconditional love is like all of those encompassed into one and if you think about it for example in most relationship setups whether it is with our family or with our lovers there's there are certain uh undercurrents sort of conditions there you know to a sense if, if you like that as much as we may love that other person there are still conditions whereas with unconditional love it doesn't matter you know it's like for example before uh, like i always felt like a failure in my life and i know that since i've started talking there's an awful lot of people can can relate with that they've written to me and they say i'm, I'm that same guy i was just like you i felt like a failure and didn't fit in and so i had no self-love you know and so from this other realm all this unconditional love gave me self-love for the first time and it was basically telling me you're okay and that's what it is it's you're okay it doesn't matter you know there's no there's no payback you know you, you've got nothing to prove you not enough to give you don't have to give anything back you know the love is all within you so that's what it is yeah interesting um once you started feeling like feeling the self-worth and unconditional love for yourself, did you find it easier to have that towards other people? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I was able to do that and give it, and, you know, I mean, uh, in fact, when I was in hospital, you know, I remember my mother came in and she said to me, you know, because when I, it, I was telling people about my experience and then um, my parents were the last to tell. It took me a week to tell them because I really wanted them to get it, you know, I thought they might not. But when I told them the whole story, my mum turned around afterwards and she said, yeah, we know. I said, how did you know? They call it a mother's instinct. She said, but I knew that something had happened to you because every time you walked into that hospital room, you got tubes and wires coming out of you and you couldn't move, but you were glowing with this energy and you were just giving out so much love to everyone around you, the nurses, us, your friends, and, you know, it was this, the strength was coming from within you. And so that was absolutely true. So it's kind of like, it, it, it does help you to, to, to be able to spread that love. Wow. Do you think that the beings that were sort of laying the hands on you in the other realm were um, basically pumping you full of this energy and unconditional love? And who do you think they were or what were they? Yeah, well, they're basically my, my spirit guides that had been with me throughout my life, but I just hadn't realized it because I was not open. I was not opening myself up spiritually to anything, you know, uh, I, all I was doing was, as I say, was anything, any adversity in my life. I was just trying to ride over it rather than trying to look in. And so, yeah, they, those beings have been with me all throughout. And particularly the first one that I was greeted by that I said that I, I knew that person that I felt familiar with that I, look uh, back looking back on it now that 
is my my higher self, if you like, my higher consciousness. That because I was so familiar with that person, that it was me, that my higher consciousness that was stood there, and that was protecting me, and that was making me feel okay. So yeah, so they're with me now. You know, when, whenever things are going wrong, like I started uh, chatting to you before we started this interview, I'm going through a bit of a tough time this moment with some some uh, family illness, and um, I'm feeling my guides are with me. They're around me. I, I get lost little signs that they are there, you know, and so they're most certainly with me. And, they're, they're, and I feel uh, we're all we've all got guides as well. You know, it's not just me. We, we've all we're all got our, got our own spirit guides, but we just don't realise it. And we don't know. And I just kind of like try to urge people to try try to connect with them if you can, you know, whether it's through meditation or or something like spiritual healing, whatever it, it suits you, you know. Mm. So, I don't know, you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, but I, I, like we were talking before about what you're going through, would you be willing to share a little bit about what you're currently going through and how what you went through is changing your perspective on it? On what it would be like if you didn't have this experience? Um. Yeah, well, yeah, well, well you know, it's, 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 Basically, my father is, is, is very ill. So it's, it's, it's obviously at this stage where we're very concerned about, uh, his health and his, his mortality. And as much as it's horrible to see him suffer, you know, I, I'm, I don't have that sensation of like, I'm turning around to the doctors and saying, look, you know, you've got to save him. What's wrong with him? You know, I mean, I, I, I love him and I will miss him when he goes, but, I feel safe and comfortable in, in the notion of knowing that when he does pass over, that where he's going to, he's going to be out of this misery that is in there. He's going to be, he's going to be well looked after and loved. So I'm, I'm comfortable with that notion that is there. But the way it helps me also is it gives me strength to, to hold, hold this together to, to kind of like, you know, um, to, to make sure, sure that he's comfortable. And to try and give him as much spiritual help as I can to, to make this final part of his journey as comfortable as possible. Uh, you know, and I, I don't actually talk about it with him, but I, I know that I can give it to him just by mm -hmm. being with him and just kind of just, you know, just give him in that, that reassurance. And I feel that that connection's there with him. Wow. So it helps me in that sense. Yeah. Interesting. I, you know, leading up to, to, to my experience, I had, um, had to make the decision for both my parents and my uncle to take them all off of life support. And, um, and I wasn't really okay with it for a long time. It wasn't until actually when I had that experience, I said, Oh, well, <laughs> if they're here, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's no problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so I, I that's kind of great. relate that's to that. Great that you, that, that's great you had that affirmation. And, yeah, because you're absolutely right on that. That's it. You yeah. know, there's, and it doesn't take away the sadness or that sort of emptiness, but it does, I don't know, it does take the edge off of it a little bit. Yeah, it does. It, it really takes it off. It's, well, it, 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 tremendously so. I mean, I mean, I lost my mother um, two years ago, and, um, and that was, she'd had a, 
she's had a small heart attack to start with so so we took her into hospital and i remember spending most of the evening with her and just talking to her and we told each other kept saying each other how much we loved each other which is great you know great ending for me and then i went home to bed and then i got a phone call around eight in the morning it was a very nervous sounding nurse and she, she said you better come in your mother's had a massive heart attack and uh and then the doctor came on the phone and and it was you know it, i thought you no know, he said you know we're trying to bring her back and stuff like that and it was pretty much a similar thing where i just thought no don't you don't have to save her she's ready to go basically mm-hmm. I, so i jumped in the car and i remember I, I put my key in the ignition and the radio came on and there was this beautiful piece of music came on right from the beginning uh, uh, by a composer called Mahler that I'd heard. And it's his fifth symphony, which is a really beautiful piece of music. It was one of my favorite pieces. And I, and I knew I thought she's gone because I got a 20 minute drive to get to the hospital. And that just kept me calm as that came on. And I just thought, no, she's gone. And I knew my guides were with me then that they, it's almost like they'd set that up, that piece of music to, to help me do that journey. And, and the same thing, I arrived and and I looked and, and we, you know, we went in to see my mom and after she passed and I just, we had to say our goodbyes to her. And I kissed her forehead and I said, well, mom, you're going to love it where you are now. I just know you're going to love it, you know. And so I got that kind of sadness that my mother had gone, but, <clears throat> excuse me, but I got the um, the joy inside me knowing that she was now in a, in a really beautiful place and she was going to love it there. Wow. Do you think um, staying in that place is a permanent thing, or do you think that there's a possibility of reincarnation? Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it's a permanent place because there simply wouldn't be room for every single soul that dies, whether they're, they're human, animal, insect, fish, or whatever, you know. And um, so, it, I had a sense of when I was there that I was being prepared for something. On a, and I, I was going, going to be going on to something else from that place. It didn't feel like, okay, this is it. This is heaven or whatever, you know. This, it, I knew that there was somewhere else that was that was waiting. And, and so I guess some people, like myself, are sent back. And then there's some people are, are meant to stick around and watch over their loved ones. I'm, and, and then reincarnation, for sure, yeah, I definitely believe in that. But I think a lot of people could reincarnate and come back. Mm. And their souls come back into either different human bodies or even different animals or, or whatever, yeah. Do you think that the realm that you're in was the highest realm? Or do you think um, the sky's the limit with this? Like, like how... like. Like, you know, like it just keeps on going, keeps getting better and better or. Um, yeah, I, I guess, I guess I don't know. I mean, that's I, when I went to the spiritual church, I, I got, um, very friendly with somebody who, who, uh, who she passed only a few years back. She was, she was elderly herself, but she was really wise and she got so much knowledge on spirituality and she talked to me about all the different realms. And she said that the realm that I went to was was a was a high realm, a very high realm, you know. But um, I know that there are obviously I've looked into to NDE since, you know, and, I, and and I've done quite. In fact, I did a conference uh, last weekend, which is like the the global near death experience online conference. So there's a lot of people like Dr. Evan Alexander speaking, and Peter Panagori and Trisha Barker, and all these people, 
they've all had near-death experiences and some of them they did go to that they went through the tunnel that i talked about and then they would go on to different realms and have you know different experiences than me um so but i don't know whether they're higher or just different because every near-death experience is, is different but there's one common denominator and that is that everyone comes back with this knowledge of unconditional love mm. um but that's that's all i know yeah I, and i guess i i felt for me i felt that i'd learned all i needed to know because other people as well go through um what they call a life review and that's normally people who've who've not been too nice to others throughout their lives you know like you know there's people who've like sort of been you know horrific bullies uh, in their lives or they or, <laughs> you know yeah exactly or, or they've or even they've killed people you know and you know at war unnecessarily and and so they have a life review and they and they put through the, that they have to experience what that person was feeling they their, their souls how they how much they damaged them and so that's their life review but I didn't have a life review. I'm not saying I was a good guy. I'm sure there'd be lots of people who would turn around to me who knew me before and say, hey, you weren't that good. But I don't think I went to the point where I was like a, a menacing bully or, mm -hmm. or, or a killer. <laughs> you know, so, so I didn't have a life review. Yeah, yeah I had that, actually I had that conversation with Peter about the life review. And I was oh, right, telling, you Peter. Yeah, I had Peter on and... Um, we were talking about that, and I was like, "Man, I don't want one. <laughs> you know, I don't want to have to go back and look at all the bizarre, crazy stuff I've done." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Do you know what? I was quite happy that I'd, I'd learned what I learned, and I felt that because you know the, I didn't make the choice to come back; they made the choice for me. But I guess they thought, right, he's learned all he needs to learn. Let's send him back, and I'm still learning from it now. Do you know what I mean? It's like, like I said to you, I felt like I was. I felt like an umbilical cord was still attached to this other realm for a long, long time, you know. And um, I think it was only through when I had like a wake-up call, once I, once I was well enough, I had to go through a lot of legal stuff. And the legal system, well, it just sucks, whatever. It doesn't matter what your situation is. It's really tough. And so I'd gone from feeling all this love and giving out all this love to being thrown into like, hey, you know, You've got to be tough now. You know you can't. You can't show love. I mean, my lawyers were saying that. You know, I was. I was asking questions. I was going. You know, how's the train driver? How's he doing? You know, because you know, they said no. You can't say that. You can't worry about. It. You've got to. This is like a legal jungle. You know. So that was kind of like a wake up call, and that kind of almost like that threw me into depression because I just thought I can't deal with this. I can't deal with having to be like that in the world anymore. That's not me now. My, all, I'm, all I want is just to be part of, of giving love and receiving love. Well, not receiving love. Yeah, of course, it's great to receive it, but yeah, giving it. Right. So, so after the accident, you did have sustained permanent physical injuries with your arm. Um, mm. Were you concerned about it? Like, did you feel any depression or anything like that from the physical energy? Physical injuries that happened to you yeah um i did i not so much yeah i felt depression but that was uh post-traumatic stress disorder really that that was the, the, the put on the depression but also the depression of having to deal with as i say that all the legal stuff and because i was you know there's a lot of personal dissection goes on there you know that's how it works in in law um but um so yeah I so I had quite a lot of therapy because they they knew I'd need some therapy and 
they knew I was going to get post-traumatic stress disorder because it's, you know, the, as I say, the human body and, and mind shouldn't have to be subjected to anything like that. It's like soldiers who go to war. They shouldn't have to be subjected to what they are. So they come back with with, with PS, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, so, yeah, there was a lot of depression. But both the ther- – I was lucky I had a brilliant therapist and, and also I continued to go to spiritual healing and, I, and the, t- the two kind of buoyed me up and, and gave me my strength to sort of get, get my feet back on the ground. And, uh, you know, and I still feel like that now. I feel that, you know, science is really important. You know, without the doctors who work in, with the science, I wouldn't be here chatting with you now. They saved my life, you know, as much as spiritually – something really huge saved my life that day yeah i mean for example the the the, the uk rail police did a, a year-long inquiry on the whole accident because it was it was a big thing you know a big safety thing um and they said at the end of it you know they said look we've finished all our inquiries now but we don't get it you should not be alive all our figures show that you should be dead and you should not survive that and i said well i was saved by a far greater force than you me or that train and they just kind of laughed and thought, okay, you know, but I know that and, uh, for sure. So, yeah. Hmm. Why do you think you, I mean, we, we sort of covered it, but, but um, after experiencing your entire life, not just the accident, but what happened, you know, your life previous, the experience, your life now, what do you think the big picture really is? The big picture is is basically that, that, like I said to you in the NDE, I realized that I was in the universe itself. And what I re- also realized was that we are all part of that universe, all of us, you know, every single thing on this earth is, you know, sort of we vibrate with the universe. And and ultimately, I felt safe in that universe. And the, the universe wants us to move on and keep, recreating you know if you look at the universe the way it 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 makes nature sort of you know refurbish itself you know throughout mm-hmm. all the seasons and you know and, and, and there's always new growth and and new life you know forming you know where i live i live near the river and so like we've just come through well we're in summertime now but in the spring it's great you see all these birds migrating from from Egypt and you know Canada, and they come and they land on the very same spot on the on the meadow that's on the window, and then suddenly there's chicks. Suddenly those chicks grow and they all fly off again, and that's the universe allowing all this to sort of go on, and we're all part of that, all part of that picture. And um, you know what's going on now with the pandemic. You know there was a lot of people really frightened by it all and, and upset. And a lot of people saying we just want to get back to normal, and I keep saying. That's we're never we're never going to go back to normal, you know. Why, we should accept that the universe has, has has given the whole earth this kind of shake up. But going back to the rug scenario, we needed the rug to shake, and and the dust will settle. And uh, out of all adversity comes rebirth, you know, new, new birth, I should say. So, so yeah. So that's we're all, that's the grand thing of it all. But that's the grand picture is that we're part of the universe. Why do you think the universe is actively creating? Well, because um, uh, the universe is constantly moving forward, you know, and uh, and and the universe is is light, and 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 light is 
again it's the source of all energy and the source of all, all creation so it's just it's it's um it's a vast it's a vast f form of beautiful energy that you know and we're just on this planet you know we're on this huge planet which is also a living organ itself you know but you know it, we're only a tiny speck or a tiny star in one galaxy and then there's there's you know thousands and millions of other galaxies that are there that we don't even know about and uh you know we're, we're, we're part of it. It's interesting because when I talked about it earlier, when I looked down into that universe, uh, you know, the, 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 the waterfall of stars, so, sorry, and I saw all those nebulas and all those nebulas and stuff that I in, incorporated in my paintings. And, and it was only recently that the, um, the Hubble telescope that takes images of our galaxy came back with some new pictures um, um, about 18 months ago. And in those photographs, my friends were contacting me saying, have you seen those new Hubble shots on the news? And I said, no. And I said, well, see them because they're like your paintings. I thought, wow, that was just like a real moment of affirmation <laughs> that what I'd seen and tried to create in my paintings was what I'd seen in these galaxies that seem to go on forever and ever. So it just goes to show that, you know, that, that um, yeah, it's a beautiful place. <laughs> The universe is, 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 is beautiful. It's a wonderful, wonderful So do you display any of your paintings in art galleries? Um, no, not in, no, not in art galleries, no. I, uh, I tend to, a lot of my work, you can see if people are interested in looking at my paintings, you know, go online. I mean, if you go to my Instagram account, uh, which is just David underscore Ditchfield, a lot of my work's up there. Or you can go to my website, which is uh, Shine on the Story. Yeah, shineonthestory.com. And uh, if you go on there, that's kind of like the first platform where, and you can listen to the music as well if you're interested. You can you can, you can stream that first symphony that I talked about uh, on there, which is about my NDE, and listen to it for free. Um, so, yeah. But I, so I tend to, yeah, display my work as much as I can via, via the web. To get do, it do you sell it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sell paintings, yeah. yeah. Uh, and prints as well. So if people are interested in prints, I, I tend to sell prints, of, of, especially of the spiritual stuff. Yeah. Hmm. Any um, any new pieces of music being composed? There is. Yeah, I'm working on one now. Yeah, a new classical uh, piece for orchestra. Yeah, uh, which is called uh, "I Wasn't Expecting This." So, and that's 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 a new one that I'm putting together at the moment. Um. And that's come together. Yeah, that's, that's again. I'm being helped. I'm being guided. You know, I'm being given tuition on how to pull this out of the bag and to hear new sounds. And and you know, each each thing I do, I feel like I'm learning more. It's like with the paintings. You know, I, I'm I'm learning new techniques and stuff. I'm getting like this crash course in 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 composing. You know, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, when I took my first uh, score to the orchestra, I remember. Because I got a guy to, to sing, I wanted somebody to sing the, the third and final movement because I thought it'd be good to have like some like a narration, if you like. And I knew this guy in Cambridge who was a really good tenor singer, and uh, I'd heard he's one of the best. So I went to him and I said, "Look, do you know anybody that might be interested in doing this? Because I can't pay anybody at all." And he looked at the score. He said, "This is great." He said, "I'll do it." I said, oh, "Fantastic!" And he's got a, he's got the voice of an angel, this beautiful voice, and. He said, this is, this is an amazing composition. I, had, I can't believe you put this together with no musical tuition whatsoever. Uh, he said, people go to universities to study this, you know. I said, yeah, I know. 
And I said, I'm sure you've written plenty yourself. He said, no, I wouldn't even attempt to write a symphony. It's a big, it's a huge thing. It's a huge ask. So I'm still managing to create. I mean, I've had commissions since from that very first one. You know, I've had other people commission me to write. And most, a lot of people who do commission me, they say, look, we love the fact that that piece you, you wrote was so spiritual. Would you mind writing a spiritual piece for us based on your experience? So, no. so yeah. So that's how it tends to come about. So are you still doing it on a synthesizer? And since then, have you like yeah. started using any music theory to it? No, none whatsoever. I, I still can't read or write music. And I think if somebody turned around and said, look, you know, we want to give you, a, a, you know, a, what's it called, a scholarship, you know, to go to university, I, I think I'd turn it down because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, I never intellectualize it or get too serious about it. I just hear these sounds and, I write them on the synthesizer, you know, and um, uh, I mean, I've got a much, I've moved beyond just having the old cassette recorder now. I, I use like a, you know, basic logic uh, program on my on my laptop. Mm -hmm. And I've got sounds that sound like different instruments. If I want a horn sound, I'm, I, I can play those in and build it up, and build the textures up. But I still get it just to transpose it into musical format and then just print it off and... Uh, and that's how that's how it goes. Um, and so yeah, but each piece I feel that becomes more and more, slightly more and more complex because I'm learning all the time. You know, it's like anything; you just kind of improve each time you do it. Yeah. So yeah. So do you think there's any coincidence between the connection between the music and the art? I mean, color and sound are both forms of vibration. And, yeah. they're, and they're very closely related. Like, if you look at, like, the theory of, like, you know, colors being seven colors, music, there's seven musical notes, they, they kind of go hand in hand. I agree with you. Yeah, I agree on that. They're just, um, they're just two, dim they're different dimensions, I guess, really. You know, it's like, you know, like, it's, um, you think about it, it's like, you know, art is, is, is like a, it's, it's one dimension. I know it's two dimensional, but it depends how you look at it. If you, if you look at a painting and, and you and you love it and you want to stay, stand there and look at it, you know, it's it's a beautiful painting that you're looking at and you get it. Then it becomes more than just a you know a two dimensional painting on a canvas. And music is the same. It's 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 one dimension. You are hearing it through your ears, but if you really love and you get that piece, it becomes three dimensional. The sound surround you and and you know and, and you know, resonates through your your whole body and your soul but it's it's still a different it resonates in a different way than a painting does so i i feel that it's i'm giving everything i can now about my experience in as in, in as many dimensions as possible and that's because the feedback i get off people you know is is great i mean doing all these interviews is great because it means that i'm reaching out to far more people now who after the interview, you want to go and look at my paintings, uh, my websites, or listen to the music. And so the feedback I get is great because people are getting it. You know, some people say that they meditate to my music now, which is great because, you know, if you're meditating to a piece of music, then it becomes, then it definitely becomes, you hear all the, the, all the textures of those sounds and they breathe more. You know. Do you think that the music and the art is meant to heal? Yes. Uh, I well I certainly hope so. Anyway, I mean that's that's what I think my my mission, as I say, is uh, is t is to sort of you know 
is to heal as much as I can through my through my music and art because it does. I'm getting. There's a lot of people write to me now who, who just lost lost loved ones, or they are terminally ill themselves, and they write to me, and uh, and they tell me, you know, that the the either my paintings or my music is helping them and to face what's just happened or what is about to happen, and yeah, you know, I write back to them, and and it's a big responsibility, you know, and but it's interesting because. You know, I think long and hard. I think, right, I've got to respond to this person, and I'm being helped with that as well. I feel like you know, my guides are helping me to say words back to them that I didn't even know I was going to say, and uh, and I, which is great because when they respond, I can tell that that they've got it what I'm saying, and then they're feeling, you know, we're, there's a connection there. There's a, you know, we're, we're vibrating on the same level, which is very important to me. Wow. That's that, that's fantastic that you're getting that response from other people. Having that yeah. response, you know, just it validates your work. It, it makes you want to just keep on going. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's it's one of the most important things to me. It really is. I think it's always been very important to me. I mean, I wish I could just like reach out to. It's not even like an ego thing. I mean, it's not like a sort of like I want to be uh, have my name in lights or be a huge success from that point of view, but. It's the you know the more people I can reach out to and 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 give that comfort and reassurance that um, death is not to be feared. I mean, and that, that the soul lives on and, and this beauty awaiting us all is great. You know because um, because we don't we don't. What I realise now is that we we don't talk about death at all. You know, do we? we it's never really addressed by Western <laughs> civilization. You know, some cultures do, and that's great that they do. Because I mean. It's it's going to happen, you know. It's, it's, it's going to happen to us all at some point. We are all going to face it, and whether it's with our loved ones or ourselves, you know, we're not we're not immortal, and so we may as well discuss it. And then it will help us when we get to the end of our journey to know that we've discussed it. We plan everything else. We plan birth. We plan our marriage. We plan even you know driving our taking our driving test. So you know why not just try and plan. You know, our death and and no, just discuss it a bit. We don't have to be talking about it all the time, but you know, it's it's there's no harm, is there? You know, in addressing it at mm-hmm. some point. Yeah, like I know for my own, for myself, I don't want to have to. I don't want to fight death. I don't want to resist it. I want to be able to open myself up to the experience when it happens. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you will. Yeah. Because you know you you've had your own experience, so you know you will. Yeah. Because um, yeah, there's no point. Is it once 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 your time comes, once you know that that this is only the end of one stage of the journey, and you're moving on to the next stage. If you can accept that, it makes a lot of difference. Because there's been a lot of my friends oh, since this has happened. You know, we lost their their loved ones, and uh, they talk about you know we talk on the phone and stuff, and they'll say, oh, you know, my dad or whatever, he's he's scared of dying he's not letting go he's he's like he's almost comatized but he's frightened and you it's almost like if if only i could have reached their 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 fathers or whatever it was who are resisting death and just spoken to them in advance and said that it's okay to let go when the time comes you know <laughs> yeah yeah my dad was real resistant to it <laughs> he right all the way go. to the very very end God. <laughs> Until we had like no choice. 
Yeah, <laughs> had no choice. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So um, before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you? Yeah. Well, as I say, you know, the best starting point is uh, is my my website, which is shineonthestory.com. And you'll find all my social media links there because if you're interested, you know, I've got a YouTube channel and I've got an Instagram page and a Facebook page and you can follow what's going on, what's coming up next, you know, uh, various projects that are, that are going to be happening and, and stuff and interviews and please do come and follow me and get in touch if you, if you want to chat to me, you know, because, you know, it's a good way of connecting there. You know, people can message through most of those platforms and uh, I'll always get back. Wow. Well, thank you for being on. This was a fascinating interview. Seems like you and I have a little bit in common. We do, don't we? Yeah. It yeah. always makes it easier to chat, doesn't it? So that's yeah. great. <laughs> We're singing from the same hymn page. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank well, you again. And I will post the links um, to your website and the notes to this episode so my listeners can check out your website, your artwork, and your music, and, and buy your book. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. And hang on for one moment while I play my outro. Remember, 